storytelling is so powerful. And in today's podcast, I had the chance to speak with two amazing fellow authors who also wrote books about narcolepsy, Claire Crisp and Henry Nichols. In this episode, we share some behind the scenes stories and tips for aspiring writers. Claire Crisp is an award-winning author of Waking Matilda, a memoir of childhood narcolepsy, which charts her family's heart-wrenching journey to find an accurate diagnosis and then move from the UK to the US in search of a life-changing treatment for their youngest child, Matilda. Henry Nichols is a teacher, science journalist, and author, and his book, Sleepyhead, The Neuroscience of a Good Night's Rest, explores the neuroscience of sleep and the impact sleep disorders have on physical and mental health. And of course, I'm the author of Wide Awake and Dreaming, a memoir of narcolepsy, which tracks my journey developing and adjusting to narcolepsy in my early 20s while in law school. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. The Narcolepsy Nerd Alert series invites listeners to dive deeper into specific topics relevant to living with narcolepsy. For more on this topic, please check out our corresponding toolkit, available for free on our website to download, print, and share. The link to the toolkit and other Narcolepsy Nerd Alert topics is in the show notes, or you can go to project-sleep.com. Hello. Welcome today. We're really excited to bring all three of us authors together. So I guess to start, where did you guys get the inspiration to write your book? What was that decision like? Was it an easy decision? And what or who inspired you, I guess? I'd been a journalist, a science journalist from well, 20 years ago. And so from about two, the early 2000s until well, easily... 2011, I deliberately avoided writing about narcolepsy. Looking back on it, I actually can't really believe that I made that decision. But it was partly, I just didn't, because when you do a piece of science journalism, you really find out stuff. And I didn't really want to find out stuff, which I cannot believe that I'm saying that now. You know, if there's one thing that you definitely have to do with something like narcolepsy is really really find out everything and understand your disorder as best you can so I mean doing the book eventually I learned a huge amount about it but just I think what tipped it was meeting Emmanuel Minya who perhaps more than any other researcher on narcolepsy and I met him in uh, Cambridge in 2011 at the Narcolepsy UK annual meeting and interviewed him there and then wrote a feature for New Scientist. And then it sort of, it just flowed from there. The idea, it, you know, it still took about another five years for me to actually put the proposal together. But that was when it, when I decided to write it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause Henry, I think I remember talking to you and cause I remember what apartment I was living in when we first zoomed and you talked about, yeah. so it must've been, I 
was just published, I think, um, when we first talked about you writing a book, I want to say early 2013. Yeah, I think that was probably one of my first interviews with you, actually. So I, I read your book and then knew that I wanted your voice in it. So we talked. Yeah, that was really early on. So that's how long it takes. If, I, if that was 2013, then there's another five years to publication. And really, if I'm honest, I'm only writing for that last year. So, you know, you sort of put together interviews and start, you know, I should do so much reading and developing ideas and connections and mapping things out. It just takes forever with a book like this. But yeah. Claire, what about you? Yeah, it's interesting, Henry. So I sort of am tracking with with what you're saying and have a similar sort of struggle early on, although inspired by Julie. And I think we'd connected over writing, must have been about 2013, 2014. But I struggled for different reasons, not so much with the science, but more the emotional piece. So the sort of inspiration, I suppose, was really just the journey and the struggle um, and there was one night, probably in sort of early 2014, because as caregivers, my husband and I were up, you know, through the night, you know, monitoring first days of Zyrum, second days of Zyrum, and then everything in between. And it was, it's, it had been crazy for so long, like our lives just being nocturnal, really, as caregivers. And there was one particular night where Oliver said, you know, we, we should write a book about this. And um, I thought that was a great idea because... He was already an author, although he's a scholar, not in, you know, anywhere near the memoir genre. But I remember thinking, oh, that's a really good idea. He could write the story and I could just fill him in with all the sort of medical details and the dates and looking through Matilda's medical notes. But that was kind of the start of it. And it soon became pretty apparent that it was my work. I had initially thought I would tell Matilda's story. But then realized, like, I can't tell her story. She's four, five, six years old. Like, she needs to tell her own story. So, like, to back up a little bit and then tell the family journey um, through my lens, really. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah. I guess for me, I wrote a big paper about the history of Zyram and GHB in law school. And my professor said it was the best paper she'd ever received in all of her time at BC Law. And so she said I should turn that into a book. And it, it re-sparked something in me because I'd love creative nonfiction when I was in college. And so I guess I set out to write that book, The History of GHB Zyram. I worked on that for a few weeks. <laughs> and I felt like I was just kept find myself um, going to my story. And I thought I would include myself in that story. However, I just found I wanted to talk so much more about myself. <laughs> than the history of GHB or, or even realizing I wasn't really a drug expert in the way that people thought um, a drug expert should be writing a book or something. So I changed my idea. And if my dad wasn't upset or scared originally when I said I was going to write a book after law school instead of being a lawyer, then when I changed my idea about what I was going to write about a few weeks later, he was even more scared, I think. <laughs> but I did stick with that one. And Judy, I don't know what the other book would have turned out like, but I, I feel you made a good call there. That's <laughs> Well, you know, I could still write it someday. And we've talked about That's we could it. later in the conversation, talk about next steps and what we think about we still want to do. Um, but perhaps, Julie, your decision speaks to the power of the personal narrative. And I'm sure yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's... We, could, we could like be more, you know, sciencey and more fact based. 
but what people remember is the personal experience so you definitely made a good call I think yeah, we that's all- what I meant I think yeah. yeah thank you there weren't really there was one book about narcolepsy at the time and uh, had been published in the 90s and I enjoyed reading it but I think I felt like a creative nonfiction lens could be good or memoir style, although I don't really like medical memoirs. So I really drew my inspiration from people like Dr. Oliver Sacks. And I was curious if you guys have like literary inspiration. I, I, Henry, I remember reading about yours in further reading, but can you guys just describe a little bit more about where you drew from? The book that I mentioned at the end is a book I would never have picked up in a bookshop, but I bought it on electronic device. And I wouldn't have picked it up because it, it turns out to be a thousand pages. But it should not put you off. It's, it's, it's called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. He's a writer and writes a lot of psychology in, in, in New York basis. He's a really great writer, amazing writer. And his book is really about this thing of what happens when you have children who are not quite what you expected and they're different from you or when you're a child and your parents are actually quite different from you. So there's this, this metaphor being far from the tree. And a lot of the in there is disability. So there's a chapter on deafness. What is, what's it like being a hearing child growing up to deaf parents or, or vice versa? There's dwarfism and one amazing chapter on exceptional musical talent when you have an incredible gift as a musician and your parents aren't obviously that great but you become this prodigy and that's quite alienating too it was a it's a fabulous fabulous book i can't recommend it highly enough but it brought in a lot of i I suppose science but this very very brilliant conversational in-depth getting to know these characters wow so i think i was leaning sort of like when I was thinking about writing I sort of rewound back to okay what did I read in memoir you know back in the day and I sort of remembered Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes all the real classics that were game changers in the memoir space but that was pretty you know dated at that point so when I started to think seriously about writing I knew I had to learn the craft of writing and for me that meant reading so I've, I probably read probably over like 100 memoirs in the process of writing Waking Matilda. But there are a few that stand out. And one of them is Mary Carr's work because she's, I always find some of the best memoirists are also poets. And she wrote um, Lit and Cherry and she's written on writing. And in fact, I should say that as well as reading memoir and some of them, I loved and I studied their prose because prose was really important to me in terms of finding my voice. And that was a real struggle and a real journey, but also whether or not I kind of loved their prose or didn't like, I feel like I studied the books that I didn't love as much as I studied the books that I did, like how, how I don't want to do it and how I do, (laughs) how I do want, you know, because I had no like formal training. I mean, my background is in, physical therapist and as an educator so I was coming at this really kind of very cold and excited but also very aware of the challenge because it's one thing to say oh I'm just gonna you know isn't it something like 90% of the population want to write a book and 1% of them do 
So I was very aware of needing to study the craft. So Mary Carr has written uh, not just great memoir, but also the art of memoir and also Anne Lamont on Bird by Bird, Stephen King, obviously. So I think I, I studied great memoir within the genre, not so great memoir, like how not to do it, but also the craft of writing as well. I love the way you put that because I actually found I didn't like a lot of memoirs and that really discouraged me, you know, in a way. And I remember even throwing one medical memoir like across the room because I couldn't stand reading it. And then I thought, I'm going to write one of these. So finding the gems, then studying the craft of writing. It is such a process, isn't it? And I love investigating. So I guess that's, you know, we have to do a lot of reading. And I guess for me, when I mentioned Oliver Sacks, that was... I think what was so inspiring about his writing was that he brought to life things that were invisible, you know, the invisible experiences of people with neurological conditions. And that somehow gave me the courage to talk, especially about like the hallucinations and sleep paralysis incidences I'd experienced, because even though he was often talking about his patients as a doctor, he validated like that firsthand patient perspective so much to me. So and things that other people might think are, you know, so weird or whatever, you know, he had these beautiful explanations for it. So yeah, so that was one of my major inspirations. And thinking about, you know, how you approach a book, I mean, narcolepsy is so much, there's so much to it, right? And I think it's all happening at once. And there's just different layers of the symptoms. And even as you think about narrating narcolepsy, I think often you get advice from books about like, keeping things simple, you know, or how do you, when so much is going on, how did, how did you feel like you ended up deciding to structure your books, I guess? With a book like mine. So I, I thought I got to write a book about narcolepsy and, uh, and I pitched it to, to my publisher and they went, uh, could you write a book about all sleep disorders with narcolepsy as a bit of it? I thought, well, I can really write about narcolepsy because I actually know that and I don't know the others. And so it's going, if I tried, it would be really unbalanced. And, and it probably actually is, if I, if I think about it, it is definitely much more about narcolepsy than any of the others. But there's a good reason for that. And it turns out that, yeah, as he's saying, narcolepsy, there's so much going on that I've come to see narcolepsy as like one of the best qualifications you could possibly have to be writing a book about sleep disorders. Because it just covers, it covers everything. And I didn't realize it at, at the time, but then, you know, I was trying to, I've got chapters that I've got to, got to write about insomnia or I've got to write about restless leg syndrome, which I don't know nothing about, actually. I know all about both those things. And most people with narcolepsy will too. And so finding these connections was rather wonderful. The structure then, actually, the structure of this book is relatively straightforward in, in that I could almost treat a sleep disorder within one chapter as a contained thing. And that obviously helps a lot when you're writing because you can focus in on one thing and you know where it's going to go in the book. But you do not want, I think, and at least my publishers always encourage me to try to, you know, mix it up so that it isn't, then it's it's not, I might be wrong, but you, then it's if it's just one chapter that's totally isolated, not connected with the other, then it's just like reading a collection of disjointed stories. So you need to weave something through all of these that stitches them together into a more satisfying whole. The structure of a book like that is tortuous. 
the writing the book was completely simple wait once you've got the structure but that is like when you're pitching it to a publisher you've got like two pages that you're going to sell it that's all you have to write it sounds like really easy that might take you four years to get those two pages good so yeah moving that bit around and it was a bit organic as it went you know oh oh there's that new connection i can put that back in here and It'll touch with that bit I mentioned earlier. And so you've got characters weaving through, but me kind of going all the way through. I know for me, um, running the marathon, I knew at that point I was writing a book. And so it was it was kind of a strange thing to know if I don't finish the marathon, I'm going to have to come up with a different ending. So I was going to go with the end of law school <laughs> as the ending, but did put an extra pressure on running that marathon just to finish. You know, I didn't think that people would care too much about the time but it did, it was interesting to do that experience. And as I was writing about my marathon journey, I knew it would probably be part of the book. So it was kind of a different way of thinking, whereas the beginning part of my journey with narcolepsy, I didn't want to be part of my life. I never thought I was going to write a book about it. I was like, get this narcolepsy out of my life, you know, so it's a different yeah. experience. Those two, and people have said that those sections of my book read differently. And I kind of wonder if that's why, um, whereas like trying to recapture a time of my life that wasn't important to me, you know, at the time didn't feel significant to something that, okay, all right, I'm writing about this for a book. <laughs> but Claire, what was your experience like? Yeah, I sort of relate to Henry's comment on the sort of organic nature of structure. I think I had set out with something much more linear, you know, like I, I was very dependent on medical notes and my memory is a bit terrible, which is a really interesting topic for memoir because how much are we dependent on our memories and therefore how much truth do we kind of weave into the narrative but um, I had certainly set out with this sort of very linear like you know we start in 2009 when Matilda's healthy and then we do you know the H1N1 vaccine and then everything goes south but actually at the end I did a U-turn and I think it's because I was reading a lot and just felt more engaged with narratives that were a little bit more kind of jumping around in space so I actually switched it all out at the end and I think I started with the present and then I jumped back to the past and then I also did something else which was just a very sort of self-indulgent kind of reflective few weeks right at the end before I published where I just had this moment where I decided to kind of frame each chapter within a child's book narrative that I had read to the children and so you'll see at the beginning of my chapters there's a quote from real classics you know it could be Harry Potter or Trumpet the Swan or whatever and it was really interesting it was a very sort of creative experience and really sort of emotionally poignant and important to me to frame the context of what I was saying with the past I think so I needed to jump around between being linear and non-linear I love the structure I just love that you started with the really intense moment and then sort of back up to Matilda's birth and and getting to know your family so yeah I thought that was a really powerful structure and the ending too you kind of jumped around with time at the end I did yeah I think it just draws on you know a lot of personal experience and um difficult times but also as you write, as a writer, you start to process that and it is cathartic and it is meaningful and it is sort of a legacy, whether we love that or not. It, it is, you know, once something's in print, that's something. 
But I, I actually feel the same way about all forms of art, you know, whether we as writers put words on a page and construct paragraphs or and to our audience, if their gift is to create art forms that are more visual, more digital, more theatrical, you know, there's all sorts of contributions. It's just so happens that mine was with words. talked a little bit about memory and I think for me I felt very similarly uh, especially those beginning years that I didn't want this to be part of my life and I I did forget if it was from a book or a class I took they said to trust what you think that you're probably more correct than you believe yourself to be so I kind of went with that and wrote some stuff and I eventually went back and found emails and that was very rewarding to actually see how closely the emails I'd written to a friend like that same week of the actual thing happening matched up so closely with my memory years later. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Henry, I think, you know, you said that you didn't have a lot of writing, but one of my favorite passages, I think of your whole book is the, um, your detailed analysis of your sleep paralysis. The first time you felt it, you were in India, I want to say. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I've got a couple of little notebooks of things like that. One, which I'll come back to, and then one from, a meeting with a neuro consultant neurologist where, and bear in mind, this is pre-internet 1994, no, no way of searching this up. I have written in this tiny notebook, the words narcolepsy and cataplexy. I'd self-diagnosed and I went to a consultant neurologist and went, could it be these? <laughs> and was told, no, it can't be these. But the, the India one, so that was around the same time, in 94, 1994, and in the summer holiday, I went sort of backpacking around India. And I was really sleepy around the place on these coaches and things, got got to some hostel and just crashed out on the bed and then woke up, but I couldn't move. And I could just hear, but this, you talk about in your book, auditory hallucinations, what I now know to be an auditory hallucination. So this kind of quite disturbing kind of horror film like sound coming from the overhead fan that was just going round and round and round. And I couldn't move. And it was a bit of a battle and eventually came out like you do. But, and I was so frightened by it. And I was only 21 at the time. So in that phase, that rather lovely phase of youth where you keep a diary and you write profound things in it. And so I had one of those and I actually would write something every day in it. it, it they're, they're lovely, if a little bit embarrassing to look back at. But I woke up and then I quickly got the book and I wrote. I wrote exactly what it felt like. But that was, so that was the first time. And the first time is pretty scary. And then when it happens like two, three, five, ten times a night, oh, God, you get bored with it. But, and you kind of half know, don't you, that what it is. But the other half of you is still terrified were you, every time. Were you surprised to rediscover that notebook? I can't remember um, you about that part. kind of knew these things were there. So it was like combing through for interesting stuff. And yeah, my medical notes, I went and tracked them down from, from a hospital. That was really useful as well to just look at the medical side of it and yeah, get that verification because it had the kind of the notes from that consultant and others and, and what they'd written, like I hadn't known about it at the time. They'd said, no, you don't have this, you've got this, but then they have to write up their consultation as you could see, oh dear. The sort of things they write about you after you've self-diagnosed yeah. correctly at the age of 21 from a library. Thank you very much. I'm so proud of that. How about for you, Claire? I feel like 
the notes from appointments and everything? I bet that was probably pretty frustrating. Yeah, it was. Um, so when I was writing, I think that was the first time and I bought, like physically bought Matilda's notes over from the UK to US because this again was sort of a bit pre-digital really. And I had notions that when she was in hospital pre-diagnosis, because it was like the six month period where we were in and out of hospital and her you know, demise was pretty dramatic. And I was really curious is like, why are they testing her? I mean, we'd ruled out so, so many things like, as you said, Henry epilepsy and, uh, you know, cerebellar brain, brain tumors, yeah. like really dramatic kind of potential diagnoses. But it was interesting rereading the notes just because I wanted to be methodical and as accurate as I could be knowing that my memory was a bit sketch. And also, you know, I think there is a sense in which we, of course, as authors have the privilege of writing through our own lens, but wanting to hold that intention with the truth as much as possible. But I did actually read in her notes, it was one, I remember it was one morning in May, sort of a year in, and I was like, question mark, mother, and yeah, Munchausen by proxy. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I, I wasn't that surprised because we were pre-diagnosis, both sent to psychiatry so it's just tough to sort of read it you know when you actually see it written out in medical shorthand but I think it did just validate what what I was thinking as a, a parent and also as an author and as a storyteller so actually it was quite helpful but it was a little bit difficult as well just to go to the edges of pre-diag that that whole world of pre-diagnosis and how difficult it is for people with narcolepsy to put their stake in the ground and and kind of claim their territory, you know, pre and post diagnosis, but therefore how important it is for us to augment those stories. Yeah. And I think, Claire, I mean, the way that for me, your book stops time in a way, because I know we talk about these long delays to diagnosis, you know, eight to 15 years, and it can just you can almost get, oh, yeah, you know, and like, oh, mine's only six years. I'm lucky, you know, and I know, Henry, you talk about that, too. But the way that you stop time to yeah. go through those stories, and that's just the power of, of the story and reminding that it's just every day, you know, some of those those scenes in the hospital, I'll just never forget. That's a good point, because actually Matilda's diagnostic journey was really brief. But I think that's a comment on two things. One is that with a pediatric onset is very, is usually very abrupt, especially with type one where, you know, it was basically cataplexy, a video of cataplexy that diagnosed her. Without that, it doesn't matter how articulate I was, how determined I was. Every time we went back to the ER room with really, really dramatic symptoms like ataxia and incontinence and visual disturbance, like nothing, nothing held. So I would really recommend getting as much video and photographic evidence as possible. So it was those, it was those pieces really that informed very much where I was coming from. And I, I did lean very much on those documented pieces in her medical notes and, and then kind of married that with, with my memory. You know, I think I tried my best to to chart the sort of nuances and the complexities of a diagnosis of narcolepsy. And we just need more storytelling because it's so, so complex and it's so invisible. Mm -hmm. And then you put that in a three-year-old body 
and they can't even articulate what they're experiencing. And it's like a totally, it's just a hot mess, really. But your persistence as well, Claire, and just because a lot of people, is that slightly terrifies me about it, is against so many obstacles or people telling you to, okay, okay just give you a little gentle pat, tell you to go and sniff mm -hmm. some lavender or things. I mean, most people will try twice, three times, five times. But as I've, I've spoken to so many people who, you know, and the delay is because mm -hmm. of this, they just got beaten and nobody quite listened. Mm -hmm. So you do have to be, you have to have that person like you were for Matilda and be that advocate and be dogged and persistent, which mm -hmm. is not how it should be, but it is the case, I think, still. But I think all the narratives, and thank you, Henry, for saying that, but I think... You know, we meet. We need as many narratives that feed into that journey between onset and diagnosis as possible, because it is so complex and so varied. And Matilda's story definitely was probably fairly classic for a pediatric story, but how classic is that for a three-year-old? Still, not really. But we need all those narratives and perspectives to really support people that are where you were Julie in your 20s and Henry at 21 so I think it's layering up on those different perspectives and putting it in print or expressing it other ways that really gives power and voice to those that remain undiagnosed and are really struggling. I wanted to ask you guys about sort of how the reception has been and were you surprised by anything? And also if there's anything you wish you would have included, I guess that's a big question because I, I have a response to that myself. <laughs> there's something I wish I would have included, but how has the response been and would there be anything you would change? Yeah, really good. Everyone, everyone who's, uh, and no one sent me a message saying they hated my book, so that's okay, but they probably weren't going to anyway. Kind of ran out of time and there's a, you know, I'd have loved to have done more on Klein-Levin syndrome. And so I feel that's a gap for me that I didn't, you know, there's other sleep disorders, but that's a very interesting one that I should have covered and it gets scant attention. So I feel annoyed about that. I would have loved to have been able to travel more and meet more scientists in the research. I just went to Stanford for four days and knocked off about 10. It was brilliant, amazingly efficient bunch of interviews, but and some brilliant people. Claire, how about you? Do you how do you feel the reception's been? And is there anything that you would change? I think people are really generous, honestly. I've I don't I don't really like go onto Amazon, but perhaps twice a year one of my kids does like, Mom, you know, check this out. So that's really encouraging. But um, would I change anything? I don't know. I I mean, you know, kind of rereading because I read read you guys' two books again recently and then I was like, wait a minute, maybe I should read mine. It was a little bit, I don't want to say like a dog returning to vomit, but I just feel like it's a great first attempt and I'd, I'd write it so differently. But on the other hand, I'm not the same, we're not there and it was very much a story of its time. There is one scene that I wrote that I didn't put in. And again, this is the author's privilege really to to include or not include but yeah there was definitely there was definitely moments where my headspace went to kind of sort of a fantasy actually when it was really horrible in the first two years and I sort of had 
these weird daytime escapes where I would sit down and literally see myself walking away from my family. And it was really strange because I was just walking with nothing other than a water bottle for weeks and weeks and weeks in a desert somewhere. It was very odd, but it was a pleasant thought moment. And I include, I did actually include it into, I think, the second draft and it didn't, didn't make the cut. And I was reflecting on why I didn't put that in. And I think at the time of writing, Waking Matilda back in 2014, 16, I felt a lot of shame around that. And because it sort of spoke to a, a mother that wanted to walk away, which I didn't really, I just felt I was absolutely desperate. But I wonder now a few years down the road, whether I would include it because it was just the truth. And I don't feel the sort of same amount of shame but at the time when I wrote Waking Matilda, there is a there is a chapter, I think it's chapter six, if I remember rightly, on mother's guilt. So I was already like loaded up with guilt and I felt like I couldn't add the shame. But maybe now I would because I think it's all speaks to truth and humanity and vulnerability. And, you know, we come out the other side, but it's really important to share that experience with others. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think for mm -hmm. me, the vulnerable bits got in <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but I think the thing I've looked back on that was a miss for me is that one of my big messages has been the importance of social support, which I think is in there because I talk about going to the Narcolepsy Network Conference and how impactful that was for me and also for my dad, of course. But I actually had a therapist the first two years. You know, I got a therapist before I was well, They thought it was depression before they figured out, you know, <laughs> it was narcolepsy. And so I went to a therapist for one week and then found the word narcolepsy with cataplexy, but I forgot to cancel my appointment. So I just went back, you know, and I was like, oh, hey, well, it's not depression. I have narcolepsy with cataplexy. And I ended up telling her about it and really liking that. And then I kept her for the next two years. And she definitely walked through that journey with me. And she's such a huge part of my experience. Even in writing the book, she was the first person I told after my professor had said, you should write a book. She was the first person I could say that out loud to because I already, there was just, I just knew my dad was not going to like it. <laughs> he was so important to me. And so not only did she help me process my narcolepsy experience, but she's a huge part of my book experience and still to this day sends me articles about Oliver Sacks. And so I really wish I would have included that because I think there should be no shame in, in getting support from different places. And for me, part of that was therapy by accident, sort of because of the depression pre-diagnosis. And so I wish I would have included that just sort of as another idea for people. And I don't think it was because of my feelings about stigma around therapy at the time, because I'd kind of like been in and out of therapy since I was 13. So I don't think I had, it wasn't about stigma for me because, hey, I put a sex scene in, I could put a therapist in, right? But I think it was um, a little bit of, I got tired and I got lazy. And, and so of course you look back later and go, maybe I shouldn't have gotten lazy on that one. And I should have weaved it in a little bit in a few places and made her a character. Well, there is a sense in which at the end of the project, that's like two, three, four years long, you do need to like wrap it up, you know? And that's the difference between being a perfectionist and like, this isn't perfect. I'm never going to do it. Or like, I just need to wrap this up because you know, so I, I resonate with you on that for sure. There's some, you know, it's not, it's not perfect by a long way, but it's something. We definitely want to make sure we get to time to talk about um, what's next 
advice for us, but also if you have any tips for people that are interested in sharing their story through writing. I think my biggest one I've already kind of mentioned, which is to actually trust your memory and trust your version of reality, because that is what you have and not to second guess yourself. I think that would be one of my biggest tips. And I'll have to think, maybe you guys will say some other good tips and it'll remind me of stuff. I think um, find, commit to the writing process sincerely and in terms of like creating really good habits around writing, whether that's journaling or blogging, you know, there's some great avenues and platforms like medium.com where you don't even need to have your own website and you can kind of just like push the publish button that always feels really good. So to, to be committed to it and in that process, be okay with like developing your voice. And then be open to, because one of the things we haven't talked about is, you know, Henry's more robust route of, you know, traditional publication and our more alternative route of self-publication and, you know, what, what those differences look like. So there's so many opportunities for people I would just say, if you're committed to it, do it. Because I'm old-ish, <laughs> I, I have a feeling that, I mean, books is great. And if you if you want to write, then yeah, definitely the thing of journaling or just keeping a diary, writing. But obviously, most people are going to be doing that for some kind of blog or something. That would be great, amazing. Not even if nobody just if you, nobody responds, it doesn't really matter. The act of pressing that button and putting it out there is very important mm-hmm. because you will have gone through a perfecting editing bit beforehand you're gonna have to have been happy with this and then you put it out there and then you will start getting feedback and you will start getting more confident so all of that's great and I think if you are writing about narcolepsy then just do it because your experience is everyone's experience is completely different completely original Mm. and completely valid and as Claire and uh, yeah as you're both saying we, we need all that. We need that breadth so that everyone, profession, medical professionals and all people out there start to see beyond uh, a straightforward uh, kind of stereotype, a, sim- a simple one-dimensional stereotype of narcolepsy. It's quite a lot of different things. <laughs> it's like an infinite number of different things. Yeah, but I thinking about just where I started. Books may not be it if you're like the you know we need more creative kind of pub publishing using all the incredible tools that are out there, clever ways to get the message out that I'm now too old to learn. <laughs> like TikTok. That would be that would be the next opportunity I think is you oh. know I mean I was thinking about blogging obviously but that's quite old and conventional but then you know i don't know someone needs to go out and make a whole tiktok thing don't they i think it's you henry come on me oh, yeah right <laughs> you're not too old come on, me. come on we've got this we've got this yeah i think that um one of the things i would mention too is that if people feel you know afraid to share their full name or something i think we've always said with rising voices that you can just do it with your first name or with a different name and i think you could probably do something similar with medium and uh, for me, it was when I put my first blog post, that was the first time I said, I, hi, I'm Julie Flagar. I have narcolepsy on the internet. And that did feel like a big moment. 
I think there are ways to still share aspects of your story. We've published uh, posts from people anonymously, uh, a medical student with narcolepsy that really wanted to share her experience. And so we were able to do that through our blog, you know, and maintain her privacy. Uh, and still to this day, people years later are commenting back on that. So there are definitely ways to share and maintain some privacy if you want to. So, so, what's, so what's next? I mean, what kind of creative projects besides Henry's TikTok channel? Yeah, I'm, I'm starting a TikTok channel. That's me. I'm sorted. Exactly. Um, I just finished an MFA at St. Andrews on, uh, it was also creative nonfiction, but had a different kind of angle. I mean, I think it's interesting because narcolepsy is always going to be part of, you know, our family's journey. So I can never really completely separate from it. And neither would I want to because it is, you know, the truth. But yeah, I was writing on home and belonging and displacement and someone who's moved around a lot. And what is it like to, what, what is home? What does home mean to people? Is that the building that you grew up in? Is it your current place where you raise your children? Is it your community? So it was a really neat exploration in that. So I'm not sure if I'll publish it, but we'll see. I feel like your different homes in the book all very much came to life. I, I'm, I'm somewhat not surprised to hear that because that you went in that direction. Because I feel like, you know, even the Princeton uh, year that you spent there, it just felt like we could really envision yeah. these different places. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because I wasn't really built for it, actually. You know, I kind of like the idea of just being, you know, near my family and in London. So it's been quite a journey and then that was amplified by moving from Bristol in 2011 to California it was really important because we obviously were seeking out treatment and um, expert care from Stanford but um, so yeah even my current writing I think is a reflection on how those experiences have informed me now as a person and and hopefully relating to people that feel similarly displaced, but also seeking to figure out identity within a broader context of community. Henry, any other projects besides TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I mean, not, I've got things I might write one day. I, I learned to teach a few years ago, so I'm still, you know, and that's, a, that's an ongoing project that will never stop trying to get better at that. Yeah. Hmm. People have asked me if I would write another memoir. You know, it is kind of interesting, I guess, especially now 10 years have gone by. So it's interesting how close people feel, feel for me, but from a time of my life that feels so far, <laughs> you know, my early 20s. And so I have thought about that. I don't know what the story would be exactly and how interesting it would be. I think it has to do a lot more with like my own character development and like leadership sort of and how you're kind of winging it and you don't really know what you're doing but people seem to think you do <laughs> but you know and I still have this the, the history of GHB or Zyram I could turn that into a book but I think what I've focused on is helping other people share their stories and loving having founded the Rising Voices program and you know and now Lauren is the wonderful program manager I, I never thought I could even leave that program with someone else uh, because it felt so close like oh no one would ever be able to understand all these nuances of storytelling and it's been incredible to see how Lauren now trains these advocates so well to share their stories because like I I'm sick of my story like you know like I've heard it and many many times and so it's the energy from hearing other people's is is I think a big driver and, off, and so many times I hear someone saying I can't wait for everyone to hear your story so I love that feeling.
Thank you guys so much for taking this time to have this discussion. That was a dream discussion for me to share this time with you. And just thank you guys for what you've contributed to this community and continue to give back, like giving this time. And yeah, I hope the big message that everyone takes away is, of course, that we need more stories. <laughs> so hopefully there are some encouraging tips and ideas. Yeah, but then also just you have mentioned, do you want to just, well, you've got people there, the, the rising voices. Mm -hmm. so they should just, that would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? Yeah, we, you know, it's a nice leadership training that is right now, you know, trains people on how to share their story via speaking. But I think there's a lot of, you know, going from there and different people are doing really different creative things from that training. Uh, so it's a good basis, I think. We have over 100 storytellers that are trained to date across the US and uh, in the UK and, and different places around the world. So we just hope to find more opportunities for them. And I think that's just the next step is making sure that patient stories are more integrated with the medical system and more opportunities for people to share those stories. Thank you so much, Julie, for the opportunity. Yeah. We're going another like 10 hours. I don't know. I love nerding out. I'm not a nerd, but this has been fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, really fun. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.